There's no doubt that small businesses are the foundation of our communities. That's why MasterCard has invested in tools to support small business owners as they grow their business. With MasterCard tools and resources, you can increase sales by shortening checkout time, broadening your customer base, and tapping into new opportunities to increase customer loyalty. So get started. Discover all the ways MasterCard can help guide, grow, and protect your business at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. Hey everyone, it's Paige Harlock, Manager of Youth Programming and Partnerships at Canada's LGBT Plus Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. Hey, don't forget me, Rick Spence. Together, Paige and I will be your co-hosts in celebration of Pride Month. Each week, we will speak with LGBT Plus entrepreneurs to tell their stories, celebrate their contributions, and honor their experiences and accomplishments. A huge thank you to CGLCC for partnering with us this month. To learn more about their membership programming and events, go to cglcc.ca. Make sure to tune in every Tuesday, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or at startupcan.ca. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have two guests, Sarah Foti and Han Nguyen of Sandbay Entertainment. In Sarah Foti's 25-year career as a film and television executive producer, writer, and director, she's developed and delivered multiple feature films in a variety of scripted and documentary series. Sarah's passion for both historical documentaries and the telling of Canada's queer stories has influenced her most recent work, such as The Fruit Machine, a feature documentary on Canada's decades-long purge of LGBT civil servants and military personnel, and Sex, Sin, and 69, a film that unpacks Canada's partial decriminalization of homosexuality in 1969. Sarah is a managing partner at Sand Bay Entertainment, one of Canada's foremost production houses dedicated to diverse, inclusive, and intersectional cinematic storytelling. Han Nguyen entered the motion picture industry in 2002 and has since garnered vital industry experience in every screen-based medium. From feature films and shorts to scripted series and documentaries, Han has delivered content to CBC, TVO, YTV, TFO, APTN, Amazon Studios, and Lifetime. Hun executive produced Noel and Boat, a telefilm Canadian feature, as well as two seasons of Canoogly for APTN, an interprovincial territorial co-production between Sandbay Entertainment and Canoogiac Studios. Along with Sarah, she also produced the critically acclaimed documentary, The Fruit Machine, and was nominated for a 2019 Canadian Screen Award for Best Documentary Program. Hun recently wrapped post-production on her directorial debut documentary, The Color of Music, set to premiere on CBC this summer. Hun sat on the board of Algonquin College's scriptwriting program and is a member of Women in Communications and WIFT, Women in Film and Television, Toronto chapter. She is currently a member of the Academy of Canadian Cinema and Television and maintains a corporate membership with the Canadian Media Producers Association. Hun is the president of Sambay Entertainment Inc. Welcome to the show, Sarah and Hun. It's great to have you here. 
Thank you for having us. It's great to meet you. It's, it's so lovely. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, I'm going to go right into it with the first question here. So I guess my first question is, what is the top piece of advice you want our listeners and fellow entrepreneurs in the storytelling space to take away from this conversation? And I guess, Han, I'll let you go first. Wow. It's, it's a great question. Not an easy one, but I think um, I, I'd say I, I'd say folks should be should prioritize authenticity over anything else. And, and truly finding your voice and, and, and the voice of your brand. Um, it's, it's incredibly important to bring your full authentic self to, to your business. Yeah, I, can, I completely agree with that. You know, and I think it's fortuitous that we're having this discussion in Pride Month, right? Because speaking personally, I, you know, I didn't always bring my authentic self to the business. Uh, early days, you know, I was very fearful or at least you know, concerned if I brought, you know, my queer self to the, to the business, what would that mean? You know, would that mean, um, you know, being denied certain opportunities to, you know, losing out on certain, you know, bids, that sort of thing. So, so I think it's an important discussion to have because now, you know, with the, with the glory of, of hindsight, I realized that once I did start bringing my full self to, to our brand, as Han said, um, you know, things started to really flourish uh, for the company. And it wasn't like one aha moment where Han and I discussed this and, and thought, this is it. This is the synthesizing moment. It was more reflection after um, probably a few years realizing that, okay, now that we're doing this, now that I'm doing this, you know, we're, we're getting invited to tell the kind of stories that I've always wanted to tell and we're being, you know, invited into more quote unquote rooms that we want to be in. So, yeah, I, I completely agree that if, if folks, um, regardless of what sector you're in, if you can bring your real authentic self to your brand um, and not just have that hideaway in your personal life, then, then you'll flourish. That's so meaningful. Uh, Sarah, can you tell just can you just tell us a little bit more about that time? Uh, you said there was an aha moment, but there must have been a moment when you said, "I'm going to try and do this. I'm going to see what happens." And I'm just wondering how that felt for you when when you said, "Okay, I'm going to bring my authentic self." Yeah, it, it felt empowering and it felt amazing. And it, you know, in, in in a way, I felt silly for not having done it all along. But I think with the gift of of, you know, experience in business, certainly just age and maturing in business and in life, you come to these realizations that the fears that you once had are probably largely unfounded. Um, you know, but that being said, you know, here we sit in 2022 and and I, I know there's lots of queer entrepreneurs that still face discrimination, that still fear violence, that, that, that don't get to navigate the world and in safe spaces. And, um, and I'm sure it's still a very real concern for them. So it's not by any means a dead issue. Um, but I'm lucky for me that, that I'm kind of past that point in my life. Fantastic. We're going to talk about the amazing work that you guys do. But first, I'd love to learn more about each of your journeys, and then how you landed in this industry, and how you both came together and decided to build Sand Bay. So Han, why don't we start with you? And how you got into this biz? Mm, sure thing. Um, I actually uh, stumbled upon it uh, by chance. Um, I, I went to college for interior design and uh, fresh out of college, I was jobless. And But thankfully a friend of mine helped me land a gig as a wardrobe assistant for a local television show in Ottawa, uh, which is where I met Sarah. And that was about 20 years ago, Sarah? 
something like that. More, but I won't date you. Okay. <laughs> um, and I was a freelancer for, for well over a decade, you know, working in various departments, uh, wardrobe, uh, art department, you know, as a script supervisor for, for a bit and, and uh, worked as an assistant director for a long time, but I eventually, you know, uh, started producing, directing and editing, which is what I love to do most. And here we are today. <laughs> Sarah, how did you how did how did you get into the business? Similar to Hun, kind of kind of by accident. I w- I was finishing up my undergrad, and I I quite literally, you know, smashed into a woman. I was running through a faculty building trying to get somewhere too fast, and I uh, I bumped into this woman. Papers knocked out of her her hands. It was kind of a movie scene, really. And so I stopped to help pick, you know, help her pick up her things. And we started chatting. And and as it turns out, she was kind of a career coach or career guidance counselor. And I half jokingly said, I should come and see you because I have no idea what to do with my life after my studies finish. Um, and what she said, uh, English literature. And I know I didn't want to stay in academia, but I didn't really know how to apply that, that degree anywhere really beyond academia. So I went to her office and she asked me a really simple question that nobody, no teacher, professor, anybody had asked me in my life, which was outside of school, what do you love to do? And without thinking about it too much, my, my answer was foreign cinema. You know, Kingston, I don't know if it's still there, but Kingston had this amazing rep theater. Uh, and I would just, you know, squirrel away in there, usually alone uh, while I should have been studying. Um, but I would go and, you know, ingest all, all this foreign cinema that I could. And, and she quite, you know, simply then followed up with, have you ever considered a career in the Canadian entertainment industry? And I said, not until this very moment. Oh. You know, I, and, you know, for context, I mean, I grew up on a farm, you know, we, we had three stations when the weather was good on our cabinet television. Um, so, you know, storytelling on screen was a foreign concept to me. And, and certainly foreign cinema was completely, you know, on another planet. So it was just nothing I ever contemplated until she asked me what I love. So from there, she, you know, she had me you know, audit a few classes at a couple of broadcasting schools. And I saw people doing amazing things, physical things, you know, signing out cameras, going out and filming. And it, it was so different from the university experience. And, uh, and I was hooked. I got to tell you, if you wrote a script where undecided student runs into teacher <laughs> or guidance counselor and, this, and, and finds her calling while picking up the other person's books, I'd say, nah, rewrite that. But <laughs> It's Real not believable, life. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's that's perfect stuff. And and how did you meet Hun? I mean, tell me tell me tell us about that that meeting from your your point of view. Yeah, well, as Hun alluded to, we met on the set of a of a comedy series that we were producing here in Ottawa. And I think that was our first official uh, collaboration, right, Hun? Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. yeah. I think um I think actually it was your uh, Freddie, your your old bulldog, actually ran up to me first, and that's how you and I officially met. Was in the production office, thanks to thanks to your bulldog. Yeah, and and I think that you know we were in in and out of each other's lives for for you know uh, a good part of the decade, and um, I think close to twenty ten is when we started working a lot more together, and we we started to realize that we we, we recognized each um, that our values and our work ethics very much aligned and we both had an affinity to tell stories that that really mattered right and I think it, it was just like a natural a, 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 
a natural decision that we came to to mm-hmm. to collaborate formally. So tell us about Sandbay and and the type of work you do and the business that you're building together. So Sandbay, quite simply, is you know anything in uh, you know involving film, video, television work. So anything in the motion telling. Uh, storytelling space is is what we do. We kind of have two distinct silos uh, within our company, one dedicated to film and television uh, work, and the other uh, dedicated to branded storytelling. So, you know, work that we deliver, whether it's, you know, a public service announcement or, you know, a national commercial campaign, but more for commercial clients is is the work that that side of the company uh, delivers. Um, But, but yeah, we, we work across uh, Canada and internationally when we can. And uh, yeah, if it involves a story or, you know, a, a topic that resonates with us and we feel aligns with kind of our vision values, um, then we pursue it wholeheartedly and, and we love what we do. And what would you say out of all of the projects that you've worked on so far has been your favorite one to collaborate on? Yeah, it's like it's like picking your favorite child. I don't think it's possible. <laughs> Everyone has a favorite child. Hun, do you have a favorite child? Um, gosh, yeah. Well, there's so many. I, I mean, the the latest one that we collaborated on the. Uh, the color of music is is one that's because it and perhaps because it's it's so recent that it was very uh it meant a lot to me also the fruit machine was a very uh interesting journey to go through emotionally um to and but to be able to share that with sarah was and means a lot to me what about yourself sarah who's who, which one's your favorite child well at the risk of offending everybody else that we've collaborated with on yeah. other projects um <laughs> No, I'll have to echo your sentiment, Han. I, I think the fruit machine is uh, is a particular you know film that that sits very very close, near and dear to me. Uh, it was a passion project that took a long time to bring mm-hmm. to the screen. Uh, it had a long winding journey, and um, it was just a very special collaboration um, for you know a myriad of different reasons. But certainly, that's the project that that will stand out in, in the trajectory of my career. Tell us a little bit about the fruit machine and is, is it available anywhere for people to see if they want to rush out and see it after listening to the very end of this podcast? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's still available. Um, it's available on tvo.org. Um, they were our broadcast partners on that film. So it's a historical documentary, a Canadian historical documentary that looks at the decades long purge of LGBTQ plus uh, public servants, RCMP and military personnel in Canada. Uh, the purge ran from the late 1950s through to the early 1990s. So it's very recent history in this country. And Han and I put together a film that is very um, very much a personal account of that purge. It's not so much an investigative film, but more um, hearing from the survivors themselves that went through the purge and then their voices are supported in the film with various, uh, you know, scholars, um, you know, their, their chief legal counsel, um, a couple of journalists that were central to the story. So they help kind of round out uh, rounded our cast, but at its core, it's it's hearing from the people directly that that were purged. I may be the only person on this podcast who was around in the seventies. Um, you know, we didn't hear anything about this at the time. Tell us about uh, just tell us a little bit more about this purge, please. And and uh, is it something that no one talks about now, or is it uh, a burning issue for some people still? 
Yeah, it's 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 more of a topical issue now, of course, than it than it ever was. Um, as I said, you know, I, I kind of started soft research, you know, over 20 years ago, and at that time, there were barely a few hits online about it, but enough hits that it was, you know, credible. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but yeah, I, I remember the moment I, I was trying to chase down another story. I, I had read in the Ottawa Citizen this little blurb about a, a man who was trying to start what would have been at that time, the first LGBT uh, retirement home in Canada. And I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting story. So I I called him up and he was incredibly gracious and invited me for coffee. Um, And through talking with him, you know, he said, I I fear my business plan is ahead of its time because the cohort of men and women that I'm advertising to are the same, are the same group that had their sexuality driven underground during the fruit machine era. And I had never heard that phrase before. And I asked him what that meant. And he poured me another coffee and we had another hour long chat. And he really, he really blew my mind, like truly. I mean, it's something out of a sci-fi film. He was talking to me about, you know, straight walking parties where, you know, straight allies, straight friends of, of, of queer employees would, you know, host these clandestine parties where they would, you know, kind of teach their their pals how to perform themselves as heterosexual in the workplace in order to not be uh, detected or, or not to lose their jobs, like how to talk about sports at the water cooler. And and really, I, I, I remember walking home from that that meeting thinking this this can't be this can't be. Mm-hmm. But it but it was. It was very much the truth. And and again, just recent history in this country, which is staggering. Absolutely staggering. One of the things we've seen in the film business, entertainment business lately, is where someone does a documentary about something, uh, an, an issue that's been forgotten or swept under the rug. And then a few years later, someone inspired by that turns it into like a feature of some sort, whether based on a true story or, or, or disguised as fiction. Um, sounds to me like the fruit machine is ready for for a bigger screen. What do you think? I think oh my that, God, would that, would be, that would be amazing. I think that's our dream, really. Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. That, it sounds mm-hmm. like a series to me. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> no, absolutely. Um, you know, even when we were developing this, you know, every survivor that we would, you know, kind of have our pre-interview meetings or phone calls with, it was, um, you know, there was such a haunting sameness to the experience mm-hmm. and they would paint such a vivid picture and such a vivid you know, capture of, of a time, a specific time um, in Canadian history that I kept seeing like madmen scenes over and over in my head. And I thought, you know, um, I, I hope someone, if it's not us, I hope someone, I hope a Canadian filmmaker um, takes up this baton and, mm-hmm. and, and makes makes a, a scripted series, it would be, or a film, it would be amazing. Yeah, I just this feeling that recent history is sort of the most important history. And and as as you were talking about this, I had Mad Men visions too. I remember this one scene that st- has stuck in my mind forever. I think it was from season one, where Don Draper's family goes on a picnic and they park yes. the car by the side of the road and they picnic in this lovely open space. And then they get up and walk away and leave all their garbage behind. And I was almost alive in that at, at that point in time. And no one did that back then, but mm. it was an epic scene because it stood for so much. You don't take it literally, but the whole heedless way people went about destroying the earth back in those days, um, and much of which still continues, of course. So the, the, 
yeah, it sounds like this the, the, this whole issue is really ripe to, for uh, mining deeper. Well, yeah, and that's a really beautiful, I think, jumping off point because in, in many respects, that's what the Canadian government did. They had their picnic over four decades and then they kind of walked away. They might have ended the purge, but they really left in their wake, you know, <laughs> a, a legacy of, you know, intergenerational trauma, um, that that everybody is still unpacking you know there's a group <clears throat> excuse me called the lgbt purge fund that's very active uh in canada they're they're undertaking some really amazing projects i'm sure you you folks have seen that in the news around you know the creation of a national monument canada's first mm -hmm. uh, lgbtq plus national monument that's going to be built here in ottawa um they're you know developing uh, a pretty substantial uh, museum exhibit with the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. It's also going to travel around the country. And Hannah, I'm probably forgetting a lot of other undertakings that they're doing. But all to say, the work of cleaning up that mm -hmm. that picnic site is still is still ongoing. Um, and I know, kind of based on when you're talking about the different projects that you work on, it's kind of the stories that you tell are expansive you tell stories everything from french language films indigenous stories um issues that the lgbt plus community have faced in canada um it's it's amazing and as producers and directors and writers behind all of these projects you describe your specific gaze at sanbei as diverse inclusive intersectional poetic and fun how do you achieve this as you work on each project throughout the year Hun, you want to field that one Sure, yeah. I think, you know, we're very much interested in the collective other and, mm -hmm. and whether that other is, you know, French programming outside of Quebec or queer stories or, or people of color stories, you know, that's the kind of content that, that attracts us. Mm -hmm. um, but, beyond, but beyond desire, you know, we feel a responsibility to, to tell these stories, mm -hmm. right? We, we have the privilege of, of owning the microphone. And so, you know, we feel compelled to, to um, project other people's voices and bring these stories to life, bring these stories to screen so others can, can learn from them. And when you're kind of going into the process of deciding what stories you're going to do, um, how you come up with them, do they all kind of begin the same way? I feel like no, but is it kind of changed depending on what story you're telling? Um, it's Yeah, it's never the same. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I think that's what we love about it. Right, Sarah? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have, you know, we, we have our business and project intake processes that we follow as a guide track, but every project is different and every creative team is different. And I think we always get, we always start with the audience and, and how will the story that we tell, how will that success be measured? And then from there, we work backwards from, from a place of success. Yeah, we're really great reverse engineers in that regard. <laughs> it's very entrepreneurial. And you know, the film industry has been described as sort of the perfect entrepreneurial industry or virtual industry in that the the teams that get together to make films, for the most part, they aren't, you know, companies of people that have worked together for years. There are many artisans and, 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 and artists coming together uh, for for a project and then scattering and, to, and, and, and working for someone else next time. So what do your crew what what, what what do your crews look like uh is it all freelancers do you go back to the same people does it, is it depend on sort of geographically where you're working yeah I, I think all of those certainly are factors on a project by project basis i i think 
Han and I try to do things a little bit differently in the sense that the people that we kind of invite into our storytelling family, um, they really do become an extension of our own family. Uh, I don't know if you agree with that, Han, but I, that's how I view it. So we have a lot of frequent flyers on our mm-hmm. on our teams, folks that we use uh, over and over and again, not because they, you know, deliver exceptional product given whatever their skill set is that's a given but it's more for us about their values and the fact that their values align with who we are Um, and I think personally anyway I have an affinity now at this point in my career to to kind of have a focus on documentary storytelling you know I feel in many respects like I've I've done my time in uh, in in large you know film and television production and it's it's a different it's a different reality You're, you are talking about a 50 to 80 to 100 plus crew and it's it's really hard when you get into those those numbers and that scale to keep that intimacy to keep that kind of family uh, vibe and and to kind of mm-hmm. ensure that everybody on your set is reflective or they conduct themselves the way that you would and and that's really important to us so uh, yeah. you know our our slate looks a little bit different now than it did even five years ago I think a lot of our projects now especially especially the corporate stuff it it could very well be just two people on set mm-hmm. right and and that actually opens up for for real like really great collaboration when it's just the two of you and and your you know your interviewee um but yeah i i, I echo that sentiment there um i you know whoever i'm working with i'd like to be able to have a coffee with them on a personal basis after afterwards right like i want to be able to hang out with you afterwards when you say that the 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 crew can it can can be down to two people to make uh to to tell a story what what does that mean hun i mean is that because post covid we've learned that we can get by with just one cinematographer and the poor wardrobe managers out of work (laughs) no no it's not that at all and I I actually it's funny that you mentioned that because um the 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 latest film that we did the color of music uh, it was filmed at the height of COVID so it was we had to keep the crew as minimal as possible where the you know the the director of photography also did sound um on a lot of sets because we only wanted two people there to, to keep the bodies minimal. Um, and then myself as the director, what I was also doing the data management as well. So you learn, you learn to wear multiple hats in those situations. Um, we always try to, to, to crew properly for, for each project. It depends on how many people you're interviewing, the, 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 the location, the situation, the content as well. Um, if it calls for a makeup artist, then we'll hire a makeup artist. If it doesn't call for a makeup artist, then 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 we don't. Um, but yeah, I think you know we we both personally prefer smaller crews to to the bigger ones. That's for sure. It's a little bit less chaotic. I'm just curious about the balance between um, commercial work, which I guess you call branded storytelling. And, you know, the passion projects that you're doing. I mean, there's nothing more passionate than a documentary filmmaker. Um, But then how do you, you know, suddenly wake up on Tuesday and say, oh, good, today's a commercial day or something. And and, and how much of that work do you do versus the... The, the more personal storytelling that you want to do? Yeah, I think it's a valid question for sure. But we've, and maybe we're a bit of a unicorn. Uh, we've been called that in the past. Um, but we really set out not wanting to hang a, a particular shingle 
on Sandbay to say, you know, we're documentary filmmakers or we're, you know, we're a branded storytelling house. Uh, I think it's because Hun and I and our core team, which is very small, uh, but, but mighty, you know, we're all very curious about the world that we live in and we have, um, we have varied interests that, that, that crisscross all over the place. For me anyway, I've, I find great joy and creative spark in the fact that, you know, on one particular day I could be, you know, writing a pitch for, for, you know, a documentary film, but the very next day I could be, you know, researching to write a script uh, on a short documentary that we're going to be filming for say, you know, immigration, uh, refugees and citizenship Canada, you know, in Switzerland. Like I find, I find joy in that. I, I think that I would get bored if I was to silo myself in one, mm -hmm. in one place. You agree, hun? I agree. Absolutely. I think, you know, the, the, and with all the various projects that we work on, there's so much that we learn from, from the people that we speak with and that's empowering in and in, in itself. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, I mean, having varied interests and wanting to work on a lot of things. How do you narrow it down and really gauge what the audience is going to engage with and be excited by or interested in? Yeah, I mean, there's there's various tools, you know, that we have at our disposal. You know, that's the nerdy answer in terms of, you know, metrics and that sort of thing. But I think for us, it really comes down to a conversation. You know, we do get approached by independent, you know, filmmakers, writer-director combos. We, we, we get a lot of scripts uh, submitted to us for consideration, that sort of thing. And it always comes down to just a conversation internally between Han and myself and perhaps our wider team to talk mm -hmm. about whether, you know, is, is this the kind of content that we want to be attached to? And is this the kind of person that's bringing the content that we want to be attached to? Because on the, on the branded side, you know, let's say the average, you know, contract term on that side of the business is anywhere from three to six months. On the film and television side, that's anywhere from uh, 18 months to years upon years so you really have to be um committed they're, they're like individual marriages that pop up all the time for us and we, and we really mm -hmm. have to be thoughtful and do our due diligence and, and really kind of be the first people to poke holes and say is this something that we want to do because we know it's going to have an excessively long life uh in our own lives hate to intrude with the sordid business stuff but i'm wondering you know do you have a business plan for the company do you have sort of a five-year plan that says this is what we'd like to be doing after a certain period of time uh you know is there a strategy a business strategy and that sort of um stands like an umbrella over all of the storytelling that's going on yes definitely i mean we're not we're not unlike any other, you know, entrepreneur in that regard. I mean, we have to have and maintain our key relationships with, you know, with banks, we have to maintain our lending profile. So, you know, although we're in the arts, um, you know, we very much have to constantly, and we're always revisiting our strat plan and we're always saying, okay, what have we actually accomplished on this? And I'm happy to say most of the time it's, it's, it's good. You know, we're, we're checking off a lot of those, those boxes and then we reevaluate and, and pivot. Mm -hmm. And as I said, of late, we're, you know, we're really interested in documentary. So I, I think, um, I think our strat plan reflects um, our, our nimble nature and, and, and in terms of what we want to do. And, and that's important. So what does a strategy look like for a firm like yours? Is, is it a matter of setting a goal in terms of production numbers or revenues or 
just impact? I think it's both, right? And I, I think mm-hmm. any good strat plan, regardless of industry, has those kind of benchmarks. Obviously, you know, uh, I like money. Um, I like what money can do for us and, and what money allows all of us to do for others. So, um, you know, revenue targets are obviously a key key component of what we do um, and, and, you know, measured growth and all of those things. But impact is, um, I think, maybe eclipses all of that. I don't, I don't know yeah. if you agree, huh? Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think we always end up revising at the beginning of every year, we always review, review past year revenues and review past year projects and see, okay, what we, what do we, what do we want to accomplish this year? And what are the stories we want to tell this year and, and formulate a plan to, to see how we can bring that to life and how, and how to, you know, I'd hate to say it, but monetize on it so that we could, you know, keep the lights on. I, I really like the way Sarah phrased it, which is I like money. I mean, I like what it can do for us. And, and you know, business can be all about the money sometimes. But for mm-hmm. most of the entrepreneurs that I know, the, the money is a tool in order to be able to do more of what we want to do and mm-hmm. to have more of that impact that hopefully we're trying to make. Um, oh, so, absolutely. So, so what would the, so what do you think? you'll you'll look like as a company you know five years from now well it's funny our our, our chartered accountant keeps asking us that as well <laughs> <laughs> to be honest i, I don't know wanted what me to be an accountant so I'll, 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 <laughs> i wish he could have heard you say that <laughs> yes she would enjoy that um but no I, I i don't know exactly and i think that's what excites me right hun i mean i don't know what's i don't know what's gonna happen next week <laughs> and that's exciting that is very fair. We have, we have, I I think we have certain dreams and goals that we'd like to accomplish. Um, But we're also organic enough to, you know, go anywhere, go where where the opportunity is. So there, there is a set laid plan for the next five years, maybe even 10 years. But at the same time, it's like, it's not written in stone. You know, in case one of us wants to veer off and maybe we do want to go back to doing fiction and big movies, who, who knows? But we're both we're both in agreement that, you know, we're both flexible, flexible enough to to go where the opportunity leads us. Yes. And you can't I mean, we work in a space where there, there's you know, you can't project. There's no projections, even if when we make them, you know, they're useless to us. So, and you know, at, at once that's both terrifying, but it's also comforting. I mean, we've worked in the space long enough that, you know, the unknown has actually become the reliable in our lives, if that makes sense. So we, we just have to trust that, you know, um, we're on the right path and, um, and we'll continue to, to meet success along the way. You both talked about impact and having an impact on our community. And I feel like having the ability to go wherever you want to gives you the ability to kind of focus on things that will maybe create the most impact. In terms of the impactful work that you've done, I mean, we've talked about the fruit machine, uh, but I'd also like to chat about sex in and 69 as well, because both kind of talk about the awareness to the experiences and stories of LGBT plus folks in Canada. Canada. Um, would you be able to kind of give us a, a background of sex in and 69, uh, but also kind of let us know why these stories can matter to you, the community in Sandbay? Well, I just think it's very, it was a very interesting 
topic um, mm -hmm. and a very much contested one as well. Um, the legislative change in 1969, um, it was celebrated by, by so many, but it also presents a moment of, of worthy, worthy of great critique. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the film, the film itself is kind of a, you know, it's a historical retrospective around uh, Bill C-150. Mm -hmm. So uh, for the non-history buffs, um, that is the one piece of, of legislative change um, that quote unquote, decriminalized sexuality in Canada, a homosexuality in Canada, sorry. And the film came to us in kind of a, a different way. Normally as, as filmmakers, we we handle the creative ideation and then we take that idea to broadcasters and try to raise the capital to, to make the ideas. This film came to us through EGAL Canada, which is, um, you know, Canada's human rights advocacy organization. Uh, and they had raised the capital to make this film. It was still a competitive opportunity, but we put our best foot forward and, and we're lucky enough to secure the contract. And as Hunt alluded to, it, it's a very contested bill in Canadian history. There is a, is a group of folks, you know, within Canada's queer community, but also outside of it, think that it was a it was a wonderful progressive moment in our history it really put us on the world stage as, as being progressive and it was a wonderful thing but there is uh, another camp equally as strong equally as passionate and as loud that think that it was simply kind of a recategorization of homosexuality moving homosexuality or homosexuals rather the term of the day um, from from being criminals to being the pathologized. Mm. And that's really at the core of, of, of that, that argument. And mm -hmm. so, so the goal that, that we, or the challenge that we were presented with was to tell this story through as many, you know, kind of lenses as we possibly could. Um, you know, we wanted to unpack this, this legislation through, through the faith-based lens, for example, and not just one faith. Uh, and we were able to do that through the legal lens, through the indigenous lens. Um, so it was certainly probably the most politicized film that, that I've ever made. Sex in 69, I mean, that was kind of a follow-up film to The Fruit Machine. And, and uh, The Fruit Machine was almost like a perfect, you know, segue into this story because we learned through all of our research, even making that film, uh, that that's exactly what happened during the purge campaign, right? They would they would uh, investigate and 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 find out and determine like who 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 was a homosexual, you know, who was a homosexual in the public service, and then and then a lot of times they were sent for corrective treatment. They were they were forced to undergo you know um, electric shock treatments, you know. Uh, you know, psychological testing, all of all of those things. So that was very much alive and well in 1969. And it's it's an interesting, it's an interesting, you know, note. Um, to, to make, because I think a lot of people look back and think, oh, you know, the liberal government at the time was very progressive, and they try to look at it through the lens of the contemporary, you know, liberal government, but but that wasn't the case. I mean, they they did make this change, this legislative change, but but they were in agreement with everybody else that that homosexual homosexuality was was still very much, you know, the deviance and 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 mm -hmm. the sick. So um, there's lots it of interesting things to unpack in that film. Yeah, it was an illness that could be that they thought could be cured. Mm -hmm. I'm curious why um, you feel like we need to keep telling these stories and why it's so why it's so important to continue these uh, these films and continue to kind of get the, the testimonials of the folks that have been through this and are still currently going through things like it. I guess my only answer to that is that, you know, mm -hmm. the more you learn 
the more you evolve and the more you can become a better person. And and for me, I mean, I'm, I'm a historical junkie, um, but but I do believe the importance uh, of contributing to the archive, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever archive that may be, um, certainly the queer archive, um, because there's lots of room for contribution to that uh, in this country. So I, I think the telling of our stories and, and the archiving of our stories is, is essential because, you know, as writers, journalists, scholars, you know, where's the fl- first place all of us go when we're starting any kind of project? We go to the archives. Um, so, so for me, that's why it's important. And I think mm-hmm. a secondary answer is because the needle has changed certainly but it's we're not there yet you know I'm not even sure I'm going to see it in my own lifetime in terms of true equality and I think a lot of Canadians think that that um that members of of you know the the queer community in Canada have that now but we don't you know it's 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 the advocacy the the fighting the legal fighting to constantly move towards uh, a greater sense of of equity is 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 ongoing work so that's that's why it's important to mm-hmm. continually have these kind of you know discussions and, and and capture these narratives and in order to achieve that equity you have to correct history right mm-hmm. you can't you can't do that unless you know this is actually what really happened not just the queer history but indigenous history black histories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are Absolutely. so many stories to tell, right? I mean, it's there. There was one narrative for so long, the Madman era, if you like, uh, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. there are so many ways to look back at history and say, you know what, we we maybe didn't have it all together like we thought we did, and there is so much to explain. So, uh, do you see yourselves continuing to tell these stories over time? Absolutely, every day, as much as we can. That's fantastic. Do you see other people doing this? You know, who are you competing with to tell these stories? Anybody? That's a good question. I, I don't know. We don't. We don't really keep a you know our finger on the pulse of our competition. Maybe we should. Um, we kind of <laughs> we kind of sometimes work in a vacuum. Um, it's not competition, right? It's just people telling similar stories and and working together to get them out. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the reality is it's very difficult to fund, like speaking, you know, as a queer person, as a queer filmmaker, it's it's excessively difficult still in 2022 to raise capital to do the stories that we want to tell. Um, so I think my perspective is the more the merrier. I, I hope that there's a whole, you know, tsunami of you know queer filmmakers writers directors that just keep washing on the canadian storytelling shore and and demanding you know funding for their projects and and hopefully some of them will knock on our door and we can collaborate because that's a really rich part of what we do is is partnering with with other creatives um but absolutely i, I can't really see us doing anything else i mean i don't even have any other skills do you have i mean i can't no i don't even know how to ride a bike <laughs> I could, yes. <laughs> I think that's a but great way to leave this conversation. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, the stories you're telling, the 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 the, the pain points you're picking away at, because it's so important for us to understand how progress happens, and it it's not linear, and it's not very introspective, so it's not often done well, but it's our best hope over time, right? And and the work you do uh in in seriously examining these these changes these pressures these uh uh controversies and 
pointing the way to the future is so important. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Thank you, Paige. Thank you for having us. Thank you both. Yes. Of course. Thank you for telling your story and hopefully we can connect again soon. Mm -hmm. All the best. We will look forward to seeing a lot more of your work. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Startup Canada podcast and for celebrating Pride Month with us. The show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles and is made possible with the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. And thank you, Paige, for joining us as co-host this month. We've covered a lot of important ground, and we're so lucky to have you and the CGLCC in our close network of friends and partners. Paige, why don't you tell us one more time about CGLCC's incredible mentorship program for LGBT plus youth aged 18 to 39. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rick. If you are a young LGBT plus entrepreneur with a registered business, CGLCC's Out for Business program can provide you with the support and guidance you need to grow your business. We pair you with mentors and leaders in the LGBT plus community who can offer you experience and expertise through one-on-one -on -one mentoring and workshops. Check it out at www.cglcc.ca under the Youth Entrepreneur tab. Until next time, I'm your co-host, Rick Spence, joined by the talented and passionate Paige Harlock.